One more passage. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20. And let's read verse... I want to read verse 42. Promise to look at other passages in this large section that we want to cover tonight. But let me read to you the major text. 1 Samuel 20, 42. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety. Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed, while Jonathan went into the city. The word of the Lord. And we've been looking at chapter 20. Uh, last week, I wasn't here last week, but the time before last. And chapter 20, 1 Samuel chapter 20 is focusing on Jonathan, who's the crown prince of Israel. David has left Nioth. He's left a place where there's a school probably of prophets. He's fleeing for his life from King Saul. And he's fleeing to Jonathan, where Jonathan is probably in Gibeah. Gibeah of Saul, it is called at times. He's running from Saul for his life, and he seeks to find covenant safety in Jonathan. Jonathan's unaware of his father's assassination attempts. Jonathan's unaware of all these unsuccessful plans uh, of Saul to kill David. And David goes on record, and he says in chapter 20, he says, There's just one step away from me and death, he says this to Jonathan. And so he tells Jonathan the only reason he doesn't know. Remember, Jonathan says, hey, listen, there's nothing my dad doesn't do that he doesn't tell me about. He says, well, your dad didn't tell you about this because he knows it would grieve you. And so David comes to Jonathan and he comes to him because he's sworn out a covenant with him in chapter 18. He's sworn to David that he would protect him and love him. And the question is, what will uh, Jonathan do? Jonathan's the son of the king. Officially and normally, he would take the place of his father Saul as the king of the kingdom. He's in a terrible position. On the one hand, there's the family dynasty. There's the family dignity. On the one hand, there's the the father who would want his dynasty to continue. And think think about Jonathan. I mean, Jonathan's a good man. Jonathan would be given power. And what good would he do with this power? On the other hand, there's God. And there's loyalty to God and His kingdom. And there's loyalty to the the one God has chosen to replace King Saul. And Jonathan knows the next king is to be David. What will Jonathan do? And that brings us to point number one, the loyalty of the covenant. This is in verses 12 through 17. In 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. And I don't know if you remember me saying this or not. I'm sure I got it out of a commentary. But one man calls this covenant that that Jonathan makes with David the eighth wonder of the ancient world. The crown prince at chapter 18, when he sees David, when he sees this faithful man go out with a sling and stone and bring down Goliath, he takes off his royal garments and he gives them to David. He gives him his instruments of war. And he makes this covenant. And here, in chapter 20, he reaffirms his covenant. And he expands the covenant. It's just unbelievable what 
He is doing. So let's first look at the covenant being reaffirmed. We see this in verses 12 and 13. In 18, he made the covenant. In 19, he kept the covenant. And here he's reaffirming the covenant. Verse 12, chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not then send to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So here is the reaffirmation of this covenant. If my father is intent on putting you to death, I will tell you. If he's not, I will tell you. I will warn you. And so this is so uncommon. If he was normal, if Jonathan was normal, he would never love David. If Jonathan was normal, he would never give him his instruments of war. He would never give him his royal apparel. He would take David out as a rival and he would terminate him on the spot. That's, what was, that's what's normal. If he was normal, he would not hear Saul say this, David, I mean, uh, Jonathan, don't you understand? That as long as Jonathan, the son, I mean David, the son of Jesse, is alive, you will not have a kingdom and you will not have a kingdom established. It goes against all common sense if Jonathan is going to establish his own reign for him to make a covenant with David. But this is just where we must remember that Jonathan, first and foremost, is not committed to David. David Jonathan is not, first and foremost, committed to Saul, his dad. Jonathan is first and foremost committed to God and His kingdom and the chosen one that He has called to be the next king. This is where we see Jonathan so different, so different from the norm. First, he reaffirms the covenant. Second, he expands the covenant. And this is in verses 14 and 16. Jonathan knows that a day is coming where he will not be the one who is stronger. He knows there's coming a day where he will be the one who is weaker and David will be the one in power. And what he wants to do is this. He wants to say, David, all the love I'm showing you today, I want you to show me this love then when I am the weaker party. I want you to keep me alive. That's what he's going to say. Listen to what he says in verse 14. If I am still alive, what a statement. Let that sink in. Over the next, from chapter 20 to chapter 31, there's a whole lot of fighting and a whole lot of stuff going to go on where people can get, as I said to the men yesterday, people can get their jaws broken in war. Literally, not figuratively. If I am still alive, David, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You've got to show me the loving kindness I'm showing you now, then, when I am weak. And so David, in verse 8, has come to Jonathan in his weakness, crying out to David, to Jonathan and saying, David, saying, listen, I need a place of refuge. Will you? Are you just a whole bunch of words, or do your words mean something? Will you show me loving kindness that I may not die when I'm a weak person? And then he goes from that, to this, he expands the covenant in verses 15 and 16, and he says this, You shall not cut off your loving kindness. He doesn't say from me. He says from my house forever. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. 
So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemies. So just as it would have been the norm for the crown prince to kill David as his rival, and just as it would have been normal for the king, David, if he became king, to kill Jonathan, his rival, it would have been normal practice for Jonathan to put to death all of David's family and when David becomes a king, it would have been normal for David to put to death not just Jonathan, but all of Jonathan's family. But that was not going to happen because they made a covenant with one another. Jonathan is asking David to spare his life and to spare the lives of his descendants. This was, and this is today, simply unheard of. Now, I don't know. We haven't heard about King Kim Jong-un lately from North Korea. But I don't know if you heard about that story years ago where what did he do when his uncle was at odds with him? Do you know what he did? I, I, I know he did something horrendous to him. He brutally killed his own uncle because he was at odds with him. It's what we call a purge. And this same mentality is seen in the Scriptures. Let me give you three examples Baasha, 1 Kings 15, 27 through 30, it says that when he began to reign, he killed Jeroboam's whole family. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed, but destroyed them all. Zimri, 1 Kings 16, 8 through 13, as soon as he began to reign, he killed all of Baasha's whole family. He did not spare a single male. Jehu, 2 Kings 10, 1 through 11, when he began to reign, he slaughtered all the princes in Ahab's household. Do you know how many princes there were? Seventy. Seventy princes. And all of their heads were brought to Jehu in baskets. It's pretty brutal stuff. This is the norm. He killed, in fact, Jehu killed every person in the house of Ahab, and not even one of Ahab's closest friends were left alive. This was... And this is the norm, and it's still practiced today as it was then, with one exception, David and Jonathan. David promises in verse 17 before God to show loving kindness to Jonathan and to his whole household. And later on, when David had the opportunity, we all remember that name that's hard to say, Mephibosheth. When he found Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son was alive, he had him sitting at his own table. I want you to behold the eighth wonder of the ancient world. These two men trample, literally trample, on the norms of their day and on the norms of our day. And so we should ponder in our hearts this wonder. Would you like to be a wonder to the world today? <laughs> would you like to be a spectacle? Wake you up a little bit. Or would you like to be a spectacle? In the world today? How in the world? Well, not, not one of us is going to be a crown prince and not one of us is going to be a crown princess. Uh, we're, we're not going to be in this kind of situation, but every single one of us have made covenant promises. I'm looking at somebody right now who's made covenant promises and I'm watching all you guys keep these promises. We make covenant promises when we come before the church and we profess our faith in Jesus Christ that He's the one who saves, that we're committed to Him by faith, and that we renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we can go through all our vows. We make these promises. 
We make promises as husband and wife till death do us part. We make promises to our children to raise them up, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We make promises to love the members of the church. And you want to be a wonder to the world? Here's how you do it. Keep your promises. Be loyal to your promises. It's so ordinary. It's so ordinary. I made a vow to the Lord. I made a vow to my wife. I made a vow to my kids. I made a vow to the church. These are so ordinary. And when I think about spectacles, I think about things like, I think about things like Mary taking a, a, a bottle of perfume that's 11 or 12 ounces, $27,500 worth. I thought that's a spectacle, isn't it? And we, we even had a, a sermon a few weeks ago by Aaron Mize. And we talked about the fact that, you know how much all those 75 pounds of spices that were placed on Jesus' body were worth about $200,000? That's a spectacle. And if we go and we look at Hannah, remember we studied about Hannah? She brought three bulls and not one when she was worshiping God and giving thanks for a son that she received through prayer. Those are spectacles. How can you and I be a spectacle? Well, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? How will, you, how will they know that you do those ordinary things? That you do not sensational things, but ordinary things. That you love each other. That you do what Jesus did. That you wash one another's feet. Those are that's a spectacle. People will take note. Dell Davis writes about his mother, her loyalty to her father. He was deteriorating and his mind was beginning to slip. And he says that she ministered to him all the way till he died. And this is what he says. These are his words. Nine months after my father died, my mother died. Perhaps... She died because she felt like she could. <laughs> she had accomplished her mission, taking care of her husband. It has something to do with sickness and in health. Something about a covenant. If you want to be a wonder to a lost and dying world, in a day when people do not keep their word, keep your word. Keep your promises. All men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. Second, be wise in keeping your promise. Did you notice how wise Jonathan was? He understands there's seasons in life. He understands that at this point in time, he's the strong one, and David's the weak one. He can't, he's not going to get anything. When he, he, David's not going to be able to help him at all. Not right now. He's the weak one, he, and, and Jonathan's the strong one. And so he knows that one day also, there's coming a time where Jonathan is going to, he knows he's going to be the weak one, and David's going to be the strong one. And so he knows there's, there's different seasons in our lives. And there's seasons when you are going to have the power to show the loving kindness to those who are weaker than you, and they're not going to be able to give you any return. And then there's going to be a time where you're going to need and folks, listen, don't we need to learn this? Aren't we just so set on not being helped? <laughs> Isn't that right? We're just so set on being help helpers, but we don't want to be, be helped ourselves. It's something about humility. And you know, there's going to be a time where we need to be helped. I wish my son was here because I'd kind of point him out and say, you know, even as a husband, and here's our wife, just think about a wife, she's getting out of her car and she's trying to bring all the groceries in. 
and you see her, and you're just going to stand there and watch her? Go ahead. Go ahead and bring them on in. No, what you're going to do, husband, is you're going to run out there and you're going to take them up so that she doesn't have to carry them. And sometimes, uh, just on the spur of the moment here, we can give a hug to somebody who's low. We can give a word of encouragement to somebody who's down. It's going to take wisdom to think through how to fulfill our covenant promises and to understand the circumstances when it's time to give and when it's time to receive as the season dictates. Second, tonight we look at the costliness of the covenant. Now I remind you last time, a few weeks ago, remember David, he came up with the plan to show Jonathan uh, what Saul's intentions really are. And so the next day was the New Moon Festival that's scheduled. David is expected to go to the New Moon Festival. And what he's going to do is he's going to hide in a field. And he wants Jonathan to go to the New Moon Festival and sit there with everybody. And he's going to, he's going to try it out and see what happens. He's going to, he's, the goal is to tell King Saul that <clears throat> David is not there because he's asked permission to leave and go home for an annual feast. My brother's commanded me, if you go read the text, my brother's commanded me to come home and, and, and I want you to give me permission. So this is the plan. So he's going to sit out there in a field hiding behind a rock. Jonathan then adds to this plan a little bit in verses 18 through 23. He informs David that what he'll do after he finds out is he's going to go out into the field where David's hiding. He's going to shoot a few arrows. And if he says the, the arrows are to the right of you, to the side of you, that means that there's no harm intended by my father. But if I say the arrows are to my lad who's out there with me, the arrows are beyond you, that's a signal that Saul is intent on murder. And so the new moon festival's underway. Everybody shows up for the festival. There's Saul, there's Jonathan, and there's Abner, the general of the army. Everybody's there. The attendants are there, but David's not there. Saul is totally silent. Verse 26 tells us that Saul thinks, well, he must have made himself unclean, ceremonially unclean, and so he's not here because of that. And so the first day, Saul says absolutely nothing. But the next day when David doesn't show up, Saul begins to ask some questions. And so we see this interchange between Jonathan and Saul in verses 27 through 29. Saul says, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal? Either yesterday or today, Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. For he said, please let me go since our family has a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me go away that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, you're, you're, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse? to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Saul thinks Jonathan is a first-rate fool. Don't you know? As long as this man's alive... You will not be the king and there will be no more dynasty established on the earth for us, for you. But this again, listen, this again shows us the difference between Saul and Jonathan. Think about Saul. God has been going after Saul all these times. Saul has a spirit 
set against him to stop him, to torment him, to repent, and he will not. It is almost like he is... Think about the reverse, the, the, the negative uh, fight that's going on in Genesis 32. We've got Jacob uh, fighting against God, but Jacob wants a blessing. We've got Saul fighting against God, and God would like for would, is pressing him to repent, but he won't. Hand in glove, hand-to-hand combat with God. And he will not give up apart from being compelled to do it. But then on the Jonathan side of it, Jonathan has emptied himself of any expectation to be the next king. Jonathan has emptied himself. He will be under God. He will be the one who places himself at the uh, under, under David who will be the chosen king. He has given it up to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ, for his king David. It's not about me, Jonathan says, but it's about God and his kingdom. So on the one hand, we have Saul howling, you and your kingdom. On the other hand, we have Jonathan saying, God and God's kingdom. And this cost Jonathan greatly. Oh, how it would have pleased Saul for Jonathan to give David up. Oh, the pain of having your dad at odds with you. And that's just, just think about that. Oh, the pain of having your daddy at odds with you. Jesus says this in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jonathan understands this very well. He put God first. And when he questioned his father in verse 32, he says, What has David done? Do you know what he did? He took the spear. Remember, he's sitting where he sitting in, the, in his place with a spear in his hand. And this time, instead of throwing it at David, he threw it at Jonathan. And Jonathan knows he's intent on murder and he's grieved. Would you like to be a wonder to this world? Then be all about seeking the kingdom of God, just like Jonathan. If it's all about you, if it's all about your kingdom, then you cannot, you simply cannot love God and you cannot love others. But if you love God and seek God's kingdom first, you'll find yourself loving his people as well. Saul is the best example of you and your kingdom. Listen, he will not give up. He will not give up his will. At every point when Jonathan is confronted with the will of God, he will not back down. It's a frightening thing to see this passage of Scripture. Saul is fighting tooth and nail, hand-to-hand combat with God. In the last chapter, he went to go kill David at Nioth. And what did God do to him? God forced him to lay down on on the road. He forced him to take his royal clothes off. He forced him to praise and to prophesy. He will not submit apart from being forced to do so. Is this not a warning for every person who will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ? 
If you say, this is for me, my kingdom, and all, I, I'm going to quote Charles Stanley. You know what he used to say? If everything is for the big me and the big I. We got to bow down. And if you won't bow down, and Saul, Saul hasn't read first, he has, he knows, he knows it now. But first Samuel 30 and 31, he's not going to win, right? He's not going to win. And neither will any of us if we do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ on this earth. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says that we will be those who bow down at the name of Jesus. We'll all bow down. Our tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. We'll either do it humbly and willingly by submission or we will do it by being compelled to do so just like Saul. Jonathan's the best example of God in God's kingdom. God, he makes a covenant with God and he makes a covenant with God's king. He's willing to give up his position, but it will cost, and it did cost him a great deal. And it's going to cost you and it's going to cost me to bow down and serve Christ and his kingdom. Call God's king, Jesus Christ, our king. If you're willing to bow down to Jesus Christ and give yourself to him, then it's going to mean that you have to die to yourself. It's going to mean that you have to give up your reign and let Christ reign. Jesus talks about his death and he says it like this. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus says, if I, if I don't go to the cross and die and I'm broken, I'll just be alone. But if I go to the cross and die alone on the cross, when I die and rise from the dead, there's going to be many Christians. And there's going to be much companionship. And there's going to be a great deal of love. But it only comes through death. And the same is true for us. We are convinced so many times that life is all about me and myself and I. And Jesus says it's just the opposite of that. If you will die to yourself, then you have love, then you have life, then you have friends, then you have God, then you have God's will. It's just the opposite. Real life comes from dying to myself. Well, let's end with this, the peace of the covenant. There's a great deal of agony at the end of this chapter. As much as Jonathan might want to come into this field and give David the good news, he has no good news to give him. And so there they are. I don't know, maybe Jonathan and David had practiced shooting arrows in this field sometime in the past. And so he takes his lad with him. Probably was the norm. He takes his lad with him. Jonathan goes out there, shoots the arrows. And when the lad gets out to where the arrows are, he doesn't say the arrows are to the side of you. He says the arrows are beyond you. That tells David that Saul is intent on murder. And so once he does all of that, he sends his lad away. I'm sure he, he does this on purpose. I'm sure there's a reason because probably he wants to make sure the lad just sees him staying out there by himself. But then David comes out from hiding behind the rock. We see that he bows to the ground three times in gratitude. A lot of weeping is going on. And then we come to the verse that we read at the very beginning of the service of the, of the sermon. Verse 42, it says, Go in peace. Inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and between you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed. David rose and departed. And while Jonathan went into the city.
go in safety. Now, the word safety there, I don't know what the ESV says, but safety is the word in the Hebrew for shalom. Go in peace. The first question I want to ask myself is, what kind of peace are we talking about? <laughs> uh, Jonathan, you're going to go to a father, to a house where a father's deranged. You're going to go to a father who's full of green-eyed jealousy, and you're going to go to a father who throws spears. <laughs> and then I'm going to go to God knows where. Go to the wilderness. What kind of peace are we talking about, Jonathan? But I think this is the peace that Jonathan's talking about. Yes, David, we're going to go to our separate places. But David, you can rest assured in our relationship. You can rest assured in the fact that wherever you are, in whatever trials you're in, you and I, we are right with each other. We have peace between ourselves. We are covenant friends. And is this not the epitome of the peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ? Hebrews 13.20 says, God is the God of peace. Isaiah 9.6 says that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 says the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Peace. And when the Spirit of Peace communicates the gospel to us, we have peace with God through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And there's no more enmity. In Pilgrim's Progress, remember Pilgrim's Burden. Y'all need to go read this great book. Go read it. Go read it if you had not read it. And it says that when Christian got to the cross, the burden of sin fell off his back. It went into a hole right there at the foot of the cross and it went away. It was there no more. And there were three shining ones who said this, Peace be to thee. There's peace between our souls and God through Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. But when we leave the cross, and when we leave this place where we know about all this peace, we're going to go to our separate corners, if you will. And in every separate corner, there's going to be trials. There's going to be difficulties. This peace we have with God coexists with troubles and trials. There's one difference, though, between the Jonathan and David relationship. When Jonathan and David leave, they have to remember the peace they have with each other. But when we leave here tonight, we don't leave without Jesus Christ. Because He says He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He says in Matthew 28, verse 20, He says, I will never leave you alone. I will always be with you, always there. I'm an ever-present help in time of trouble. We have to believe that even though we do not see until the future. Jesus speaks this in John 16, 33. He says, In me, remember we talked about that this morning, in Jesus Christ, in our union with Jesus Christ, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. The peace we're talking about is not a peace without conflict, but it's a peace with God through Christ who has sworn His friendship to us. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray that you would make us to be wonders and spectacles to a watching world. We pray that you would make us those to be at peace with you through the, peace, the Prince of Peace and by the Spirit of Peace. We pray that you would make us to be those who keep our promises, who keep our promises with wisdom, 
Make us to be those who seek your kingdom first and who love your anointed King Jesus. Make us those willing to pay the price to die that we might live, to die that we might know companionship, love, fellowship with you, with your people. Send us home, Lord, knowing this peace. And send us home, Lord, knowing that you are ever present with us in the person of your Holy Spirit, teaching us that Jesus never leaves us and never forsakes us. We pray this in his name. Amen.